Well, regarding the uh, life of Rock Valley Bible Church, just want to direct you to the bulletin. You can read that. Um, but this New Year's Eve, if you're looking for a place to go or a, a party to attend, which will be edifying to your soul, uh, to the Guskies' house. We're going to uh, start 7 o'clock, but I'm sure you can come whenever you can. We're not going to be there quite then. We've got uh, my in-laws are coming in. So Ray and Lola, you all know, will be here next week. Um, we're picking them up from the airport, so we'll be late for that. Uh, but we're going to pray in the new year. It's a time of worship and, and prayer. So if you'd like to come, I would encourage you. It'll be a great time. For the rest of you, you can open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Find ourselves in Hebrews 3. As you're turning there, I want to tell you something that took place about two years ago. It's about a mile from here. Um, am I okay? What happened? Am I okay? Hello? Okay, I'm back. All right. About two years ago, about a mile from here, construction crews began uh, working on the bridge at Newburgh Road, which crosses I-90. And uh, maybe you remember that time. I know that's right near our house, and that's a a main thoroughfare that we do cross I-90. We remember that time because we were inconvenienced a little bit with our our travel. Um, But it was February 18, 2008, that crews began... in the middle of Newburgh Road that said, Bridge Out, big signs, barricades. And over the next several days, Cherry Valley Police Department uh, officers were nearby, and they posted them nearby the bridge just to see if there'd be any problems or difficulties there. And uh, the officers, their testimony is that they never, I'll just go like this if I'm, the officers never saw a vehicle approach the barricades, even come close to the point where they would need to turn around because they drove by, they saw the bridge out, and they would just continue on their way. Um, they didn't see any cars proceed behind, beyond the signs. In fact, Joel, Joel McGinnis of the Illinois Tollway Authority said, the barricades and signs are compliant and may have exceeded some of our standards. She even noted that a secondary set of barricades already extends across the road and shoulder. Well, ten days after these barricades were posted, maybe some of you remember this, February 28th, a man named Matthew Peterson was heading east on Newburgh Road about 6.30 at night, and from the tire tracks in the snow, it was obvious that Peterson ignored the barricades and the signs and drove right around them, heading straight for the bridge, which of course had been taken out ten days before, And so he careened over the hill onto I-90, hitting the back of a semi-trailer's flatbed before landing on top of a Nissan sedan driven by Mary Brown and her daughter as they drove down I-90. Mary Brown sustained serious injuries in the accident, was trapped in her her vehicle, and the rescuers had to cut her from the wreckage and fly her over here to St. Anthony's on State Street where she's treated for injuries. By by God's grace, her 12-year-old daughter was uninjured in the accident. But I want you to think about this. What would lead Matthew Peterson to drive over that 15-foot-high wall there on Newburgh Road? To ignore the warning signs, to continue right on to drive over that? He was arrested for DUI. He was driving under the influence. And I say this, Justice Matthew Peterson was driving under the influence. There are many in this life who live under the influence. Oh, I'm not talking about sin and alcohol. 
Though there are many who live under that influence. Well, I'm talking about the influence of their sin. Sin so influences people that they, they metaphorically sleep through life. Ignoring all the warning signs that God has placed in their paths and continue on. And the sad news is, is this, they're headed for destruction. Douglas Wilson, let's see, i got a book here. Douglas Wilson has a good illustration of this in his little book, Persuasions. Uh, boy, it can be read in about an hour or so. It's a real easy read. And he sets up the book. It's really an allegory that he sets up. And he says this. He says, there was only one road in that region. But like all roads, it ran in two directions. In one direction, it ran eastwards up a gradual incline and ended the city. In the other, the end of the road was the abyss. In some places, the two destinations were obvious. In others, where the road wound down through some canyons in the badlands, the truth was less obvious. Still, it was impossible for anyone to travel for any length of time on this road without coming to the realization of his basic direction. Nevertheless, there were those who headed to the abyss. Those who headed to the abyss were also headed downhill and preferred that to the strenuous alternative. There were many who therefore chose to ignore the unpleasant truth. The master of the city had posted road signs warning of the danger. But road signs could be ignored as well. The master therefore instructed his servants who were on their way to his city to do their best to persuade these travelers to reverse direction. Some of them, discovering that the master had given them some of it, ability in this, became quite effective in this endeavor. And this is the story of one such individual. As he traveled to the city, he encountered many who wanted to go the other way for many reasons. From long experience, he found himself answering them according to their particular objections. And I've gathered them here, some of their conversations, in hope that others who are traveling the city may make use of them. And so it's a story, basically, of a man who has a bunch of different conversations with different people of different ideologies. There were those who, there was one man who was a hedonist, and he ran across a feminist and an agnostic. There were those who were having difficulty in marriage, and some who believed in evolution. There was a New Ager, a Catholic, a liberal, and a feminist. And all these were heading down the road to the abyss, the, down, uh, the downward slant on that road. And in all of them, this man was talking to them and said, think about what you're believing and showed them the logical fallacies of where they were headed. So it makes no sense where you're going. Turn around, heed the signs on the road and head to the city. They were to heed the warnings on the road. They were heed, to heed the speaking of the evangelist that spoke them. And in my message to you this morning, we're going to look at one of those warning signs that God has posted along the road. And this isn't metaphor. This isn't allegory. This is true and genuine. And I want you to look at this warning and I want you to heed it. My prayer for you this morning is you won't ignore the sign. You won't proceed past the barricades. You won't drive over the road where the bridge is out and injure not only yourself but also others in the process. My prayer for you all, church body, church family, is that you won't live under the influence of your sin but rather you would heed the warnings that God's post along the way that you would be walking the right way in your life. Well, we are in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, which, continue, which contains a warning section in the book of Hebrews. If you remember in the book of Hebrews, there are five warning sections in the book. 
The, the, the predominant message of the book is that Jesus is better, but there are five warning sections that just warn us to say, hey, Jesus is better, so press on by Him in faith. Press on towards Him. We saw the first warning section in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The warning there was don't drift. And the message of that was this, is that life is like a lake. It's not, I'm sorry, it's not like a lake. Life is like a river which drifts and pulls us away. If we sit and do nothing, we will drift. But God calls us to swim against the tide, swim upstream to the city, not ignoring the salvation that God has provided for us. The world, the flesh, and the devil will, will seek to pull us away. So look to your prize. Swim against the tide. Swim against the current and press on, as Hebrews says. Well, today our, our warning is this. Don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. Chapter 3, verse 7, through all, really almost the end of chapter 4. We'll just start it this morning by looking at verses 7 through 11. I want to read them for you, and as I read them, I want you to hear the command. There's one command in this section of Scripture. I want you to listen to it. The writer writes, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked Me. It's in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Can you see the command there? I hope you can. Maybe some kids. Did you see the verse where that command came from? Yes, some? No? Totally missed it? How about some adults, some big kids? Can you help us out? Nathan, I knew you'd help me. Come on. <clears throat> no, not verse 11. Verse 11 is not the command. We're looking for don't harden your hearts. <clears throat> verse what? Eight. Good, Andrew. You can go first for the treasure today, okay? You get the treasure. Verse eight. Don't harden your hearts. Everything or else surrounding this passage, verses 7 through 11, is all support. It either explains it, illustrates it, or persuades you to follow this counsel. Don't harden your hearts. And I just think about today, how appropriate it is for this Sunday, this Sunday just before the New Year's, when we all think about what the next year will bring. And it's a time, many, many people make some resolutions. It's a time for turning a new leaf. It's a time for thinking about what, what you're going to do. What, what are some aspirations or ambitions that you have for 2010? Maybe you'll say, May, this year I'm going to read through the whole Bible, right? And you're going to start in Genesis. And uh, we'll see how you slog through Leviticus. I would encourage you to press on, though. It is rich. Maybe, men, this would be the year that you say, finally, I'm going to put my foot down and establish a, a regular pattern of family worship in our home. That would be a good resolution. Just say, we're just going to gather, read the Scriptures, five minutes a day, pray. Maybe, ladies, this is the year that draws you closer to the Lord than ever before. Miss the trials and difficulties you're having. Children, maybe this is the year that you put away some of your childish ways and, and follow the Lord with your whole heart, forsaking the sin that so easily entangles and loving and pursuing Him with your whole heart. How about making this your prayer every day. Oh Lord, 
give me a soft heart. I don't want a hard heart. God, let me have a soft heart that's tender to your ways. You know, I think that would be a great prayer for us to pray in 2010. You think so? Every day you get up, maybe put it, maybe put it on your alarm clock or your mirror. Just, say, just pray that prayer. Just, God, give me a soft heart today. Be a great prayer for us today. Well, let's dig into the text. The warning says, don't harden your hearts. My first point, for those of you who like outlines, like my wife, here's my first point. The context. Verse 7. The context. First thing we notice here in verse 7 is the connection to the previous section of Scripture. It begins with this word, therefore. They, they connect us. It's a conclusion of what's made. And on one level, this is a conclusion of the first six verses of chapter 3 which speak about how much better Jesus is than Moses, verse 3 being the key. For he, that is Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. See, Jesus isn't merely a, a servant in the house. He is a son over the house. He is the heir of all things. Jesus is better than Moses. And because he's better than Moses, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts towards Jesus. He's better than the law. He's better than the sacrifices which Moses commanded. He's better than the feasts and the festivals. Don't harden your heart away from Jesus and back to the law. Keep your heart soft and tender towards Him. And on another level, these words really take us back to all that was said in chapter 1 and chapter 2 because in chapter 3, verse 1, it begins with a therefore. And there's another therefore in chapter 2, verse 14. And we see even a, another one, chapter 2, verse 1, for this reason, it all just kind of compounds. Jesus is better than the prophets. His revelation, which is in person, is better than the revelation of the prophets, which was in word. And His revelation is much better. His experience, who He is, is much better than all of the angels because they were commanded to worship Him, but He is sovereign and Lord over all. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is the best thing going, so don't be distracted by anything else as if it were better than Jesus. Don't look to anything or anyone else for your standing before God because Jesus is your only hope, so don't harden your hearts. And I say, church family, that this is serious stuff we're dealing with this morning. In fact, it's a divine warning. Look at verse 7. It says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says... See, it's one thing for a man to ignore road signs posted along the road with barricades and he goes over a bridge. But it's another thing altogether to ignore the signs posted by God on the way of life. Because there you won't just face injuries and a ticket and a fine and jail sentence. There you will face eternal consequences. And that's what we have here in verse 7. We're looking at God's Word. This is God's sign, if you will, a billboard that is shining for us. It says, don't harden your hearts. Are you just going to drive right by that? Or are you going to heed it and turn around and plead that God would give us a soft heart? These words are the words of the Holy Spirit, the second person of the Trinity, co-equal with the Father and the Son. He is the one who wrote these words. Look what it says. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says. But wait, you might say. According to chapter 4, verse 7, it says that David wrote these words. I mean, don't they come from Psalm 95, which Phil Gusky read for us this morning? Didn't Dave them write them down on a parchment in Jerusalem some 3,000 years ago? Well, you're right. But the nature of the Scriptures is dual authorship. 
So it says in 2 Peter 1.21, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And you can apply that to inspiration, the writing of the Scripture. Men moved by the Holy Spirit wrote from God. Yes, David wrote these words. And the writer of the Hebrew quoted, writer of the Hebrews quotes David, but they're ultimately from the mind of God. It's the mind of God moved David to write. As a result, they have all the force of all the words that would come straight from the mouth of God, the supreme authority in the universe. And we must pay attention to them this morning. When your brother speaks to you, you pay attention. When your parents speak to you, you pay a bit more attention, right? Probably, I hope so. When a police officer speaks to you, you pay even more attention. And when God Almighty speaks, you stop everything you're doing and you listen to Him. You stop listening to everybody else. As Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. You stop listening to men and you listen to God you listen so that you might obey. As God, God says here this morning, here's what, what, what we are to, to heed and listen and obey this call. Don't harden your hearts. You say, well, what does it mean to harden your heart? Well, a bit later, we're going to see it Pharaoh and the prime example, the classic illustration all of Scripture of the one who had a hard heart. But we do have a clue even here in our text this morning which shows what a hard heart is. Look down at verse 12. It's the application which we will look at next week. Verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You You see that word hardened. Come there in verse 13, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. A, a hard heart is one that is, that is tied up in, in sin's deceitfulness. A, a hard heart is one that has been so deceived by sin, it's no longer sensitive to its snare. Just ignores the heeds and the warning calls. That's okay. So, so changed and transformed, deceived. That is a hard heart. Also then, you look here, In uh, verse 12, we see the word heart coming. Take care, brethren, not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Words like evil and unbelieving define what a hard heart is. A hard heart's an evil heart, a, a heart that devises wicked things to do. A hard heart is an unbelieving heart, a heart that just doesn't believe the things the Scriptures would tell us. A hard heart is a sinful heart. Bottom line is this, a hard heart is a heart that's no longer soft and sensitive to the ways of God. Instead, instead, a hard heart stands firm to resist the Word of God however it comes. You, you might take a picture of a, of a stone. A stone is a hard heart. A pillow is a soft heart. You put your head on the stone, it's just not going to form. But you put your head on a pillow and the pillow will conform to your head. A soft heart will conform to the ways of God. A hard heart will keep its heart like it is. At this point, I need to ask you, what's your heart like? Do you have a hard heart or do you have a soft heart? When you hear or read something in the Scripture, does your heart cry out to God, Oh God, help me obey. I want to be like that. Or do you, or do, you do some um, exegetical gymnastics trying to get out of, Well, doesn't really mean that for me. 
Or do you not care all? I don't care what the Word says. I don't care what the Bible says. I'll just continue on my way because this is my happy way. That's a hard heart. And the call here is to have a soft and compliant heart before God that we might first believe Him and second, that we might obey Him. See, a soft heart doesn't wait to obey. It doesn't wait for an opportune time when obedience might be easy. No, a soft heart wants to obey now. And that's the call here. The call is to submit now. Look at how the quote from Psalm 95 begins. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. It's a call to action now. It's not a call to wait. It's not a call to act soon because you know what? Soon never comes. It's like, um, I forget what that guy's name was, Wimpy. Um, he was Popeye's friend. What did he say? He said, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. That's what he said. I will pay you then for hamburger today because he knows full well that then never comes. But a soft heart will be today. So I ask you, do you have a hard heart or a soft heart? Your heart is today, right now. I'm not talking about, well, a year from now or, or, or next week. Or, I'm asking you now. Is your heart just compliant to God? Now there's a condition to this command. It says today, if you hear His voice. Now for those who have hard hearts might say, oh, I didn't hear His voice today. I don't have to repent today. I don't have to conform to God's way today because I didn't hear His voice. And I said, you just just heard His voice. His voice is saying this, do not harden your hearts. I feel this morning as if I am a a prophet in some sense. I am speaking confidently. I'm speaking for God today. It's not, not, I've not received a revelation. I've not received a vision. I'm not speaking. I'm just saying that this is what God spoke and I am saying that thing and it is as if God is speaking with you this morning. Do you have a hard heart? Don't harden your hearts. You say, how can these words written 2,000 years ago to a Jewish audience, how, are they still applicable to us today? I say, yes, they are. Think about it. These words were actually not written in about the time of Christ. They were actually written 1,000 years before that when David wrote. David wrote, today... 1,000 B.C., if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts when they provoked me. And then a 1,000 years later, around the time of Christ, the writer to the Hebrews writes, today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. And I would say that as these words were true for David, they were true for the people around the time of Christ, shortly after Christ, and they are every bit as true for us today. God calls us to keep soft hearts before Him. He calls us to have tender hearts. He calls us to hear God's Word and heed it today. Now we know that God in His sovereignty is is patient. In fact, His patience is the catalyst oftentimes for repentance. Romans 2.4 says, It is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. It is the patience of God that leads you to repentance. But there are times when the kindness and patience of God doesn't end in repentance. Revelation 2.21 says, I gave Jezebel time to repent. But she does not want to repent of her immorality. Therefore God said, I think it's Revelation 2.22, I'm going to put her on a bed of sickness. I'm going to strike her children with pestilence for those who don't repent. 
And for those who don't repent and continue in the hardness of hearts, God will punish them. That is the point of verses 10 and 11. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Here you see that those who go astray in their hearts, who don't know God, face the anger of God. They face the wrath of God. But I get ahead of myself because we, we haven't dealt with 8 and 9. So we're going to deal with 8 and 9 and then we'll get to... 10 and 11. We've seen the context. Now we come verses 8 and 9 to the circumstances. The circumstances. I'm talking here about the historical circumstances. You could say the historical context. First we saw the literary context. Now the historical context comes in verses 8 and 9. Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. I want you to notice a really important word here. It's not a big word. It's a small word. It's the word as. As. Look at it. It comes there in verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. There it is. Both times. And there was a time when the Israelites provoked God. And there was a time when the Israelites tested God. They tried Him and tested Him. You can see there in verse 9, where your fathers at this time, they tried Me by testing Me and saw My works for 40 years. And, and See, there, there's a way in which the people of Israel harden their hearts that the writer here wants us to look into how they harden their hearts and let us not harden our hearts in the same way as them. And so these are, are calling us back to say, okay, now what instance is he talking about? Because he's talking about a very specific instance in the life of Israel when they harden their hearts. And it becomes clear if you look in Psalm 95. So let's go back to Psalm 95. Bill read it for us today. Um, it is a straight quote. Verses 7 through 11 are quoted straight from Psalm 95. In fact, in the providence of God, Psalm 95 verses 7 through 11 match exactly with Hebrews chapter 3 verses 7 through 11. So it makes it easy as refer, but I want you to look here at verse 8. It's very interesting what it said. It says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. So these were, these were Hebrew words that were translated into the Septuagint, which the writer of the Hebrews quotes. But the Old Testament text preserves these words because Moses recorded these specific events in the life of Israel and called them by name. He called this one Meribah and he called this one Massa. Meribah comes from the Hebrew word reeve, which means strife or contention. So Meribah, Meribah means strife or contention. Massa just means temptation. And so what we did... Israel acted, and Moses said, well, I'm going to name this place Meribah. I'm going to name this place Massa, because there it's you strove against God. You had a contention with God, and you tempted Him. And these names are given to us in Exodus 17. So let's move back to Exodus chapter 17. But in order to understand Exodus chapter 17, <clears throat> we really need to understand everything leading up to Exodus 17, because it's like the culmination of everything. So, we go back to, we're going to go back to Genesis. No, we're not. We're staying in Exodus. Think about what, what took place. 600 years before this time, 
God made a covenant with Abraham to make a great nation out of him. And he did. From Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, there's 70 people. And then from there grew a nation about a million people. Now, though they were a great nation, they were in slavery in Egypt. And they were in distress. And they cried out to the Lord in their bondage. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered the covenant He made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God took notice of them. He appeared to Moses in the burning bush and promised to deliver Israel through him. And so Moses came to Pharaoh and requested him that the Israelites be allowed to go and serve God in the wilderness. When Moses refused, when Pharaoh refused Moses, Moses said this, By this you will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that's in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. And you, of course, all know that when he struck the water, it turned to blood, exactly as God had said it would. And then, a little longer, a little, who knows, maybe a couple months later, a couple weeks later, a couple days later, Moses came to Pharaoh, brought a message from the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. Pharaoh, of course, in the hardness of his heart, refused. And it came to pass, exactly as the Lord had foretold, frogs everywhere. And Pharaoh requested, may the frogs be removed. And Moses said, when? He said, tomorrow. He said, okay, tomorrow will be. And when Moses went out, the frogs were gone the very next day. But Pharaoh, his heart was still hard. And then again, the Lord sent gnats throughout all the land. He predicted it, prophesied it, gnats through all the land. Pharaoh's heart was still hard. And then Moses again went to Pharaoh and told him that the Lord would send swarms of flies on the Egyptians, but not on the Hebrew people if you don't let my people go. And it was so that the Egyptians swarmed with these flies, but not those in Goshen where the Lord was. And the flies were so bad that Pharaoh said, okay, you just go and worship in the wilderness. But when the swarms of flies were removed, he hardened his heart and said, no, 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 you can't go. Then the fifth plague came when Moses came into Pharaoh's presence requesting his people to go. And Moses said, if not, there's going to be pestilence is going to come upon the livestock, not upon those in Goshen where the Israelites are, but upon the livestock of of Egypt. And when he went out, Pharaoh said, no, you can't go. It happened exactly as God had said. But Pharaoh's heart was still hard. Didn't let the people go. And then came the plague of boils. It broke out on all the Egyptians. God had foretold it and it came to pass and yet Pharaoh's heart was still hard. The seventh plague came. Moses came to Pharaoh and says, thus says the Lord, if now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you then would have been cut off from the earth. That's the whole point of the plagues. Is that God says, you know what, if I wanted to, I could wipe all of you Egyptians off of the earth. I've already showed I can make a distinction between you and those in Goshen. And and if I want to remove you, I can remove you. So let my people go. I'm in control of this whole situation. My power is far beyond your power. But then he said, let my people go. He said, if not, I'm going to send, God says, a very heavy hail upon Egypt. Pharaoh was told the hail would come tomorrow. So there would be time to warn the Egyptians to stay inside tonight so you don't get struck by this hail. But in the hardness of hearts, he didn't tell his servants, didn't believe, had an evil heart. And it came to pass exactly as um, foretold to Pharaoh. He confessed his... In fact, it was the worst hailstorm ever in Egypt. Ruined many, many of the crops. Killed some of the cattle probably. It came to pass exactly as foretold. He confessed his sin and pleaded the hail stop. 
And Moses said this, As soon as I get out of the city, I'll spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. There'll be hail no longer that you may know the earth is the Lord's. When the hail stopped, Pharaoh's heart was hardened again. Only soft at his convenience, by the way. Hard when he can be in his selfishness. Then came the locusts. Same way. Thus says the Lord, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve you. If you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I'll bring locusts into your territory. And the locusts came into the land the very next day, just exactly as God had commanded. It covered the whole surface of the land. It was dark. Every plant had been eaten up just as been foretold. Moses, or Pharaoh then in his distress, pleaded that they would be removed. And at the request of Moses, a wind came, drove the locusts out into the Red Sea. And obviously God was in sovereign control. But again, Pharaoh didn't let sons of Israel go. So Moses stretched out his hand, brought darkness upon the land. Not in Goshen, where it's still light, but in Egypt. It was so dark they couldn't move for three days. Couldn't find themselves around. Pharaoh was distressed and promised, I'll let the children of Israel go. But again, when the the light came, the darkness lifted, he hardened his heart once more. Then the last of the plagues came, the death of the firstborn. About midnight, the angel of the Lord went through all of Egypt and killed the firstborn of Pharaoh and of the slave girl, and of all the cattle, being very discriminating, was the angel of God. And it was too much for Pharaoh to take. He had death in his own house. He said to Moses and Aaron, Rise up and get out from my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flock and your herds as you have said, and go and bless me also. And so the people of Israel left. Now think about it. Here's the key to Exodus 17 as we're getting there. Think about how is it that Israel left the land. Didn't they leave the land knowing full well that the sovereign God had delivered them? I mean, I don't know how long exactly the plagues took place. I I would expect over a year or two, perhaps. It's a long time, but just ten plagues came. Lots of time for talking about it. Lots of time for marveling at the way in which God worked. They saw the plagues. They saw how they started just how God said. They saw how they stopped just how God said. And they were no under no delusion about their salvation, that it came exactly from the mighty hand of God. They knew it was God who rescued them out of the land of Egypt. And they knew that God could punish the Egyptians for holding them there. And they knew that God could withhold that at His whim. And then I want us to pick up the story in Exodus chapter 14. So turn, turn back there to verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled... Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart towards the people and they said, What is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? We lost all this free labor. So they went and they pursued Israel with the goal of bringing them back into the land under slavery once again. And then verse 10, As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I mean, you need to catch this. These are the people of Israel. There's a reason why I went through the ten plagues as I did, one by one. I want you to feel the overwhelming sovereignty of God 
that he brought the plagues at his command, took them away at his command. There's nothing outside of his control. It's by God's design that the people of Israel left Egypt. And it was by God's design that Pharaoh pursued the Israelites. Look back at verse 4. Thus, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh, and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So the fact that the Egyptians are coming upon them was because of the sovereign hand of God bringing that. How should Israel responded? They should have learned a thing or two from the plagues, right? They should have seen the wonders of God and trusted Him to deliver them. But rather they caught Pharaoh's disease. And they themselves hardened their hearts just like Pharaoh had. They didn't believe. And the story continues here in verse 13. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Moses, according to then verse 16, stretched out his hand over the sea. The sea divided. The sons of Israel walked through on dry land. They got to the other side. The Egyptians said, hey, we can do this. They followed afterwards and were drowned. God's salvation was amazing. Indeed, the Israelites saw it firsthand. Any of them could have gone over to the river's edge and watched the, the Red Sea just cave in on that, uh, that Egyptian army that was coming after them. And they saw the salvation of the Lord. In fact, chapter 15 shows how much they saw the salvation of the Lord. This is the song of Moses. The horse and the rider he's thrown into the sea. Verse 18 uh, Chapter 15, the Lord will reign forever and ever. You know, they're just rejoicing in this great salvation that God had provided. Then we find them grumbling again. Look at verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, Marah means bitter, they could not drink the waters of Marah because they were Marah. They were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And so the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? <laughs> at this point, the people of Israel were being tested and rather than trusting God, they tested God. They should have said, oh great God, you have brought us this far. Salvation from Egypt is all of you. You threw the horse and the rider into the sea. In fact, we just stopped singing that song. And and now we've come to this bitter water and we can't drink and we are thirsty. And I, I know, O oh Lord, that you know all about it. Can you please come and help us? Show us some way. We trust in you. You've brought us this far. Instead, what they do, they grumbled. They grumbled at Moses saying, Oh, what shall we drink? Verse 25, Moses crying out to the Lord. The Lord showed him a tree, threw it in the waters. So the waters became sweet. And then everything was happy. See, they're hardening their heart. The saga continues in chapter 16. Verse 1, Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt! 
We sat by the pots of meat. We ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Okay, again, think about what's taking place. They'd seen the ten plagues. They'd seen his salvation at the Red Sea. They'd seen the bitter water made sweet. And how do they respond? They grumbled at Moses and Aaron saying, Oh, you just brought us here to kill us. Rather, they should have trusted the Lord to provide. And the way the Lord provided with the man in the wilderness is totally consistent with God's dealings to Israel up to this point. He provided for them. He helped them in every single way. There's, there's nothing that ought to surprise us about the man. And there's nothing that ought to surprise us about how the people of Israel responded. They didn't believe him, right? They, they gathered food on the Sabbath. It turned rotten. They tried to gather. I'm sorry. They, they tried to gather. It wasn't there. But if they gathered too much before, it turned rotten. But if it didn't, they gathered on the sixth day, anticipating the seventh. It didn't, didn't go rotten. It's just God providing how He always does. And now we get to chapter 17, which is tying us to Psalm 95, which is tying us to Hebrews 3. It's important for you, by the way, to put these things in your mind because we'll see later in chapter 4 these, these times of distinction are going to be helpful for us. But chapter 17, verse 1, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you strive with me? There's that, that reeve word. Why do you test the Lord? <clears throat> but the people thirsted there for water. And they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Right, the same pattern. They, they'd seen the twelve plagues. They saw the miracle at the Red Sea. They saw the bitter water made sweet. They saw God provide them with man in the wilderness. At this point, they think the Lord has deserted them. evidence of a hard heart instead of trusting the Lord they were complaining in fact that's why they grumbled they grumbled because of their hardness of heart the account continues in verse 4 so Moses cried out to the Lord saying what shall I do to this people a little more and they will stone me then the Lord said to Moses pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff which you struck the Nile and go behold I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock the, the rock and water will come out of it the people may drink And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And this is the reference in Psalm 95. It says in Psalm 95, verse 8, It's at Meribah, it's in the day of Massa in the wilderness. It's referring right here to Exodus chapter 17, verse 7. They witnessed unbelievable displays of God's power en route to their salvation from slavery, and they harden their hearts and turn their backs on God. And so here's the call to you. You've seen God's great wondrous workings in salvation, and you ought not to grumble and complain and test and try the Lord in a hardness of heart. That's a hard heart, and that's the application to you today. And you say, well, well, I know, I, I don't think I do that. I, I certainly, if I would have been back then, I would not have been part of those who complained. 
<laughs> no sorry, Bob. I mean, there may have been this contingent of people that complained uh, against Moses, but I would not have been one of those because my heart's soft this morning and I just say, oh dear people, how easy is it to complain? Our family gathered on Christmas Eve. Um, I told you a little bit last week about the letter that my dad wrote to all of us. And um, we, we gathered together. Um, I'm not sure how much longer we'll all be able to get together, but it was amazing. With kids in college and stuff like that, all, all gathered together. Me, my four siblings, their spouses, so that's 10 of us. My parents, a set of in-laws, we're up to 14, 21 grandchildren and a foster child. So we're, we're pushing 40. And um, we were all, after dinner, gathered in the living room, sat around a tree with our offerings there underneath the tree, and uh, waiting, to, waiting to open the presents. The kids particularly were very excited, and um, we had some children do some performance on the piano. We sang a few hymns. Um, and then after that, uh, my guess is it was an hour and a half, maybe it was two hours, I'm not sure how long it was, of testimonies given that everyone, all the adults went around the room and just says, what is it that God taught you this past year? Many of the children, particularly those in college, even shared about what college is about. Um, you know, I, was, I was encouraged in, in many ways by Christian friends they'd found, Christian uh, churches, places of worship that they were pursuing. It was, it was a super encouraging time. I told Yvonne, I think it's the most edifying Christmas I've ever had. And it was so simple, just a question, what has God taught you this week? And I, my dad, even before that, just shared something about a, a book that he gave us all about heroes and some heroes of how the gospel went to Portugal, went to Madura. Madura, I'm learning, I learned, I remember, and then got kicked out of there, and then they went to Brazil and brought the, the gospel to Brazil because they were, were kicked out of there. But one of the testimonies shared was shared by my sister Sally, who's taken some foster children into their home. And... Uh, she, my dad's written a book and she says, I, I think I need to write a book and call it Lessons from a Little Girl. This little girl has taught her so many lessons. She's about four years old and um, she's been with them for a while. Now they're under legal guardianship uh, they have over this girl because her family's just a, a mess. They've had her for maybe a year, I don't know, a year and a half, a year maybe, about a year. <clears throat> so they're in their family very much so. And uh, my sister was telling about how she was preparing dinner one night. And this little girl came up to my sister and said, Mommy, can I have something to eat? And uh, my sister was busy and she says, No, I'm making dinner. We're eating soon. Then you'll have something then. Which a little girl said, Mommy, you're selfish. You never share anything with me. And my sister said she kind of turned around and said, What? She didn't say this, but she was thinking this in her mind. She said, she was thinking, What are you, what are you talking about? I'm selfish. I don't share anything with you. We've shared everything with you. We've brought you into our home. We have fed you. We have clothed you. We have housed you. We have provided for you. We've given our time to you. We have prayed for you. We've prayed with you. We have, we have given everything we have to you. <laughs> what do you mean we don't share anything to you? And then my sister said, a knife cut her, pierced her to the heart. And she thought about just her perspective before God. And says, how many times do I grumble and complain like that about God? Oh God, here's the circumstance that I'm in. And you, you're withholding from me blessing. Because that fundamentally is what she was saying. God, you've not given me what I want. Give me the food, I'm hungry. And, and God's just saying, you know what, I'm preparing dinner now. And you'll have it in a little bit. And she also said, she didn't quote this verse, but this is the verse she was talking about. 
What, what do you have that you did not receive? There's nothing that we have that we haven't received. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no shifting shadow, James chapter 1 says. And it's a good lesson for her on complaining. It's a good lesson for me on complaining. It's a good lesson for us on how easy it is to turn our backs on God and have a hard heart towards Him. And so let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3 because this is what's being talked about here. It's, being, it's addressing the situation of those who have been provided with, with much and yet turning against God. I mean, to be sure, those in the time of the Hebrews didn't see the miraculous working of God like those in the day of Moses. That was, 2000, that was a thousand years before. They had heard about it, but they had seen something better. They had seen the coming of the Messiah. And as we're seeing through, through Hebrews here, that Jesus is better than anything that anyone ever experienced before. All the prophecies prophesied of Messiah coming were fulfilled in Jesus. He lived among the people as a perfect man. He raised the dead. His miracles were miraculous. And they saw it. The, the, the life of Jesus was much better than the angels. Way better than any of the prophets who had come before. Way better than their greatest hero, religious hero, hero Moses and they saw that and then to turn their back against those things and trust in something else it's inconceivable to turn your back on that I mean we can look back on the Israelites and see things so clearly how could they deny the Lord but can we see things clearly in our hearts Deceitfulness of sin that doesn't let us be there. We have the best in Jesus. Why would we want anything else? See, and think about it. The salvation that we have in Christ isn't merely an earthly salvation from slavery. Our salvation is eternal salvation from all of its sin and all of its consequences. It's the best gift that we could have. Talk about Christmas. This is the best Christmas gift that you could have. What else would you want? And your heart that craves something else above that is a sign of a hard heart. And I'm telling you, church body, don't have a hard heart. Don't harden your hearts. Why would you want anything else than Jesus? He's better than everything. He's better than all the Christmas presents that you received. He's better than your marriage. He's better than your family. He's better than your traditions. What we have is an eternal heavenly salvation. The, the warning in Hebrews 12 says it this way when we get there. See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if those... And this is talking about Mount Sinai. Okay, this is talking about Exodus 19, which we'll get there, boy, in a year maybe. If those did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from Him who warns from heaven. In other words, if those on earth didn't escape, and they didn't, by the way, we see here that they wandered, they saw my works, it says in verse 9, for 40 years. It's a fact they didn't escape. They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness because of their unbelief. If they didn't escape, if we turn away from the God who warns from heaven, will we escape? The warning comes hard. It's a severe warning for us, which really leads to the final point. We see in the context the historical circumstances and now the consequences. Verses 10 and 11, and I will... I'll wrap it up quickly here. <clears throat> Therefore, he says, because your fathers tested me in this way, I was angry at that generation 
And God has every reason to be angry, just like my sister had every reason to be angry at this little girl who claimed that he was, she was being selfish. God was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What will be said of us in our generation? Will God say that He's angry with us? He said they don't know my ways. What will be said of Rock Valley Bible Church? Will it be said that God is angry with us? Will it be said that we always go astray and that we don't know His ways? Listen, the ways of God are clear. He's given to us a Son, Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice. We merely need to look to Him and be saved from all of our sin. We face no condemnation in Him. In Him we're made complete And it's He who calls us to a life of faith and following Him who has done so much for us. And if we turn our back on that, God will not be pleased with us. If anything else distracts us, God will not be pleased with us. His anger will be upon us. Because in Jesus Christ, we have the God anger protection shield. He is the propitiation in His blood. That that shield that's before us, that when God's anger would come upon us for our sin, it deflects it and absorbs it perfectly well. But... But if we pursue something else, we've got, the, we've got the shield of Moses and that doesn't work very well against the anger of God, against our sin. It's only the shield of Jesus. If we set Him aside, we'll receive the anger of God upon our lives and we will not, as it says in verse 11, we will not know His rest. Now chapter 4 speaks more about His rest, so I'll get more into that later. It's symbolic though of our salvation. Because, even as verse 14 here says, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance until the end, that's where we show that we've become partakers in Christ. We need to endure. We need to, as it says, Jesus is better. Press on. We press on by faith is the message of Hebrews. So we might know His rest. If we spurn the greatest gift that God has ever given to us, we will not know His rest. It's the divine warning to us. And so I just say, church family, don't harden your hearts. Don't ignore the warning sign and go over the bridge. You will hurt yourself and you will hurt others. But to know eternal joy, follow the sign and keep a soft heart. And pray every day, 2010, God, give me a soft heart. Let's pray and then we're going to sing that song, Let It Be Said of Us. Lord, I'm, I'm thankful to You that, that the good news is this, O oh Lord, that You give the soft heart. As You prophesied to Ezekiel long ago, I will give You a new heart. I will put a new spirit within You and I will remove the heart of stone from Your flesh and give You a heart of flesh. So Lord, I pray that this morning we would heed the warning sign along the road that says don't harden your hearts. I pray that we would hear Your voice today warning us and telling us. And I I pray, Lord, in 2010, may You give us at Rock Valley Bible Church soft hearts. And I pray for those of us who are here that that even next week we might be really super encouraged to to take the antidote of how it is that we can protect ourselves against having having a hard heart. So Lord, we we plead that you would protect Rock Valley Bible Church, that you would help us, foster us, encourage within us a, a passion for you and your grace and your goodness.
We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the hymn on the screen says, Let it be said of us that God was our passion. That the cross that we were given, right, we bore. We fought the good fight that we finished the course, knowing not because of us, but knowing the power of the risen Lord in us, right? Let the cross be our glory and the Lord be our song. By mercy made holy and by the Spirit made strong. May that be said of Rock Valley Bible Church. Let's stand and sing in response to God. This is a prayer to God. May our, our God, may the Lord be our passion in Christ Jesus.